Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. Thank you, Carl. Um, I woke up this morning with, with two thoughts. I, I still had sand in my hair uh, because we did a baptism yesterday. And if you were outdoors, you would have understood um, the extreme southwesterly that we had. If you weren't in Port Elizabeth, it was intense. And, uh, but it was a glorious moment to, to do a baptism in the, in the harshness of the elements to, to witness um, a, a public confession of faith. And my second thought was, I love expository preaching. What a joy. Um, as we celebrate Reformation Sunday coming up, we're also celebrating, is it our 12th or 13th? 13th, our 13th birthday as a church, and, um, and it means that for 13 years we've been committed to expository preaching. And, uh, and we're not celebrating ourselves, we're just celebrating the joy of being a people who love the scriptures. And I want to submit to you that when we love Jesus, we love his word. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. How do we obey him unless we know what he's telling us to do? And so there is an integral uh, commitment between both word and spirit. They are completely inseparable. So 1 Corinthians, many see or speak of or think of the church in Corinth as a model church. I suggest otherwise. There are a few options that we had for naming the series. Some of the other options, we called it Lessons from a Messy Church. Some of the other options were the, the Corinthian Catastrophe. Uh, there actually is a, a commentary out that's, that's called that. Um, another one, another series is called Christians Gone Wild. And uh, we could list a few others. But when you read the book, uh, 1 Corinthians, you can get a, an understanding of, of the situation and uh, you quickly come to the realization um, that, we, that we don't want to be like this early church. Uh, we, we really don't want to be like them in all of their ways. They are possibly one of the most sinful churches in the New Testament. Paul writes letters to many churches. Peter writes letters to churches, James and John. And, uh, and this has to be one of the most um, messy congregations that we read about in the New Testament. But in addressing their sin, which is what he's going to get to in large portions of this uh, letter, Paul is also going to provide us with some of the richest theology regarding Christ and the church. And so as we journey through all the messiness, we're going to be like uh, archaeologists. Okay, So for the next few months, maybe even a year, we're all going to be on an archaeological journey together as we brush aside the mess and we dust off all this old stuff and we begin to look for the treasures in amongst all the rubble. And I want to invite you to come along with us on this journey. And so let's read firstly the first three verses. We're going to go through to verse 9 today. But let's jump into the first three. Paul is the author. He names himself right up front. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, 
Some letters like Hebrews, we're uncertain of who the author is. We're uncertain of certain details. That's not the case here. We know who the author is. We've got two co-authors here. We've got Paul and Sosthenes. We don't know much about him. I'll talk about him just now. And we know exactly where this church is located. There is now one church in the city of Corinth. There are not many churches. There is one church. It's a new church. It was planted by Paul, as we will see. And then he says this, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so just in case you thought this was some rogue church, some kind of independent church, not attached to any of the other churches, Paul makes it very clear that they too have been called to be saints together with all those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church, not Paul. And he says they are both, uh, both their Lord and ours. Notice the, 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 the kind of unity that Paul is angling for there. And then his common introduction that we know well, verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. At the beginning of every book, we need to lay some introductory foundational contextual information, some background information to this very interesting church here in Corinth. Corinth was ethnically very diverse. It was the melting pot of three primary ethnicities. The the dominant culture of the day was Roman, although Corinth is found in ancient Greece. It's a a, a Greek city, but the dominant culture is Roman. And so it was Roman law, Roman politics, Roman rule, but with Greek undertones, Greek cultural undertones. It was, after all, a Greek city. And so there were lots of ties to Greek religion. There were lots of ties to Greek philosophy and to Greek arts. And so it was a diverse city. And thrown into the mix of a dominant Roman and Greek culture, there was also a large Jewish community. We know this because there was a huge synagogue in Corinth. It's where Paul went when he first arrived in Corinth. He first went to the synagogue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so here we have these three dominant cultures, communities, melting together to form and shape this community. And the picture that emerges here is that it was an intellectually alert community city. It was a materially prosperous city. It was on on an important trade route, and there was lots of trade going through. And so that meant that it was economically wealthy, so it was materially prosperous. And at the same time, it was morally a mess. It was morally corrupt. Gordon Fee, one of the great commentators on Corinthians, he says this, All of this evidence together suggests that Paul's Corinth was at once the New York, London, Sydney, and Cape Town of the ancient world. Now he's going to plant a church there. Imagine. Imagine the intimidation factor. Intimidation from the Jews, from the, from the smart philosophical Greeks, and from the dominant ruling Romans. Now you've got to go into the city, you've got to preach the gospel, and you've got to trust God for a church to emerge. And this is the exact thing that Paul did. 
And what we see here is that although there is eventually a church in Corinth, there was an unhealthy amount of Corinth still in the church. The congregation here in Corinth was anything but ideal. Rather than sharing their possessions, they would sue each other, trying to get more stuff. Rather than eating meals together during communion, they were getting drunk off the wine together during communion. Rather than communal singing, they're engaging in communal sex. And the list would go on and on and on. Sadly, as we go through this book, we're going to see divisions. We're going to see debauchery as defining this church. Because the line between Corinth and the church was blurred. And so reading through this and going through this, one of my aspirations or, or sideline desires is that maybe you've been with Covenant Grace for a very long time. Maybe you're new to Covenant Grace. And uh, whatever your journey is, maybe you're thinking, well, you know, it's, there's certain aspects of the church. It feels like a little pebble in my shoe, you know, that person or that style or that thing about Covenant Grace. I like the church, but it's just that one thing that bugs me or bothers me that I don't really like about the church. My hope is that as we go through this book, that that little pebble will fade into insignificance when you realize what church can be like. And that you'll have a fresh appreciation for our congregation. So we know that Paul planted this church because it happens in Acts chapter 18. It's in Acts 18 that we discover that Paul goes to this intimidating city, this bustling, bold city of Corinth, and he spends 18 months there planting the church. It's easy to remember, Acts 18, 18 months. And he starts preaching, like I said, in the synagogue. He goes to familiar territory, Paul himself being a Jew, being schooled in, in, in Jewish, Jewish thought and customs, but now a, a Christian having forsaken his Jew, Judaism, he goes to the synagogue and he starts to preach at the synagogue. I don't know how he did it or, or, or what it looked like, but we know the reaction in Acts 18. He was hated. He was hated and he was rejected. And they literally threw him out of the synagogue. Now what's interesting, and as, as we read through Acts 18, now, well, we're not going to do it now, but I want you to read through it. There are two amazing ironies that emerge that we see in Acts 18. As he gets kicked out, the elders of the synagogue kick him out, but the ruler of the synagogue, a man by the name of Crispus, is converted. And not only is the ruler converted, but a, about a week later, the historians tell us that they appointed a new ruler, and the new ruler, the second ruler, is also converted. And so in the space of a week of being kicked out, Crispus, and guess who else? Sosthenes is converted. That's the first irony. So the, the first ruler, then the next appointed ruler, who's Sosthenes, who's also the co-author of this letter. Verse 1. The second irony is that while being kicked out, Paul leaves the synagogue, and he doesn't go to the next suburb. He goes next door, and he plants his church right next door to the synagogue. And it's amazing, in Acts chapter 18, verse 7, we read this. It says, And he left there, the synagogue, and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door 
to the synagogue. Luke, I think, loved writing that. And so there are many ironies, but it was incredibly difficult. You can imagine, like I said, this intimidating culture, this large city to, to plant a church. Now you've got the synagogue next door who are hurling hatred and abuse at you, but God opens a door right next door and, and, and you plant your church there. They started as a house church and it, and it grew, but it grew under persecution, harsh persecution. So much so that God had to come to Paul one night in a vision in Acts chapter 18 and he said to him this in verses 9 and 10, do not be afraid. And Paul was. This is an intimidating thing to plant a church in this context. Do not be afraid, Paul, but go on speaking. Verse 9, he says, For I have many in this city who are my people. Isn't that incredible? The Almighty God, the Eternal God, looks upon Paul, his missionary work in Corinth, and he says to Paul, don't be intimidated. Don't be afraid. Yes, you're going to be hated. Don't worry, I'm not going to keep you from all the hatred. I'm not going to keep you from all the abuse. You're going to get abused. You're going to be hated. But don't be afraid. Why? Because I have many in that city. Their names were already written in the Lamb's Book of Life. People from Corinth, the elect of God in Corinth, not yet Christians. Paul, go on speaking. Go on preaching, because those people, my elect in Corinth, those Greeks and Romans and all those diverse people, some of them, many of them are going to come to faith. They are my people. And you, Paul, are my appointed means for my grace to bring them. Incredible. So Paul eventually leaves Corinth and the church is established. The church is growing in this house. Uh, you remember Priscilla and Aquila, they join the mission and they're part of this emerging church in Corinth. And what happens is a few years later, things got really messy. It didn't take long. The Apostle Paul leaves and uh, there's some leadership that emerges, but things get really messy. And we're going to see why. And what happens is some of the members of the church write reports to Paul, and they, they implore Paul. They say, Paul, this is what's going on. We're distressed. There's all sorts of things happening here, and we're just notifying you we need counsel. And so 1 Corinthians is his reply to a previous letter. And you'll see that as you go through the letter, it often says, in response to this, in light of that, this is what you wrote to me. Here's what you need to do. And so it's a, it's a reply. It's almost like Paul is a master surgeon. The church needs surgery without killing the patient. And that's exactly what he's going to do. So let's go back to verse 4, and we're just going to go through to verse 9. So Paul then says, after his common introduction... He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called 
into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now when you read that, I hope that you are stunned. Given all that's going on in the church, given all the sin and mess, Paul's tone here is remarkably positive. Incredibly so. But it's brilliant at the same time. It's brilliant for two reasons. He is giving thanks to God for the church, and at the same time, he is redirecting their focus. And so there are two things that emerge. He's reflecting on the situation, but he doesn't want to diagnose just symptoms. He wants to go beneath the surface to the real problem, to the heart of the problem. But before he goes there, he wants to present to them something about their present reality and then something about the future reality of the church. So we're going to look at it under those two headings. One, the, the reality of the present. Given all that Paul knows, it is incredible that he doesn't go into full-blown attack mode. It's incredible that he, he holds back. There isn't this full-scale correction from the first go. That will come. <laughs> and it will come. But he starts with thanksgiving. That's his opening gambit. After his usual introduction, he starts with verse 4, I give thanks. He starts with thanksgiving. This is incredibly counterintuitive. So much so that we have to bring it down to this, that it is gospel intuitive. It is gospel centered. I give thanks to my God always for you. I mean, really, this church is giving him grief. All that's going on is, is, is really not a great witness, not a great testimony. But Paul doesn't start there. He starts with, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Church, I want to suggest that right here, right in this moment, we learn a lot from Paul's approach. Because People make big mistakes, and people get things wrong, and people stumble and fall, and people sin and fall into grievous error. And what does the world do? Cancel. This, this cancel culture that we have in the current day and age is so dangerous. And there's a, there's a moment here where we just need to take stock of Paul's approach here and realize that that's not his first impulse. This isn't his first reaction. His first reaction is not to cancel the church and say, that's it, I'm your apostle, we're closing the church. One strike and you're out. No, as human beings, we're all subject to fleshly desires and sinful desires and we, we fall, we stumble, we make mistakes. And Paul says, I give thanks to God for the grace that is evident amongst you. Paul is identifying here that, that, that before he's going to address the issues, that it's not just a sin issue that's, that's, that's nailing them. It's a, it's a fundamental issue of the heart. They've taken their eyes off Jesus. And we, we see this because if you count the number of times from verse 1 through 9, there, he mentions Jesus Christ nine times in nine verses. 
And the point is this. He is pointing them back to Christ. Jesus is saying he's the cause. He's the foundation. He's the ultimate goal. And the reason you're in a mess is because you've taken your eyes off Jesus. And the thing is, what's interesting is the church hasn't put their eyes necessarily on other gods. They've turned their eyes upon themselves, which is the danger of our day and age. The culture of our day and age is that people, I don't know many people who are running after foreign gods or eastern gods or ancient pagan gods, but they're running after themselves. This is the danger of our age, is idol worship in the form of self. And this was the situation in Corinth. They were a super spiritual church. They were a very highly blessed church. God had poured out gifts upon this church. This was a highly gifted church, a highly successful church, materially wealthy, diverse, but full of themselves. And so we've got to think, well, Paul, is this, a, is this kind of like a pop psychology strategy? You know, like maybe a teacher, you know, a teacher lands up with the worst class, you know, like that, that class that you don't want to get, you end up getting. And so what do you do at the beginning of the year? You put a sign on the board, the best class ever. Is that what Paul's doing? Like, let's just try some reverse psychology. Is he giving thanks to God, but actually he's like, these guys. No, it, or maybe is he trying positive thinking? Is he trying to prop himself up to, to try and find some courage to write the rest of the letter? I don't think so. You see, what Paul's actually doing is he has divine perspective. He has divine perspective knowing that God did begin a work of grace among them. Listen to what he says. Look at verse 2. He says, To the church of God. It's not Paul's church. It's not Sosthenes church. It's not Crispus's church. It's the church of God that is in Corinth. God began this church. It was God's initiative. It was the grace of God that opened doors it was the grace of God that saved people. Look at what he says. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is Paul calling bluff here? No. He's reminding them of their salvation, of the grace of God. What he's doing is he's saying, yes, here we have a human problem. We have a problem of selfishness, but the answer is not a human answer. The answer is a God-centered reality check. A God-centered reality check. Paul doesn't start with the reality of their sin. Paul starts with the reality of God. He calls them back to their first love. He calls them back to the starting point. Remember where you have fallings and to get there. Repent, turn again. Notice how he does it. He links their calling, their salvation, to his own. He speaks about his own salvation in the same way he speaks of theirs. There is no difference. In verse 1, it says, Paul called by the will of God. We remember Paul's conversion on the, on the road to Damascus. Remember that? It wasn't like Paul was heading off to an alpha course. No, he was going to kill Christians. And God intervened. God saved him. God took a murderous sinner and saved him. 
And God, and then he says this in verse 2, to the church of God, the Corinthians in Corinth, called to be saints. The same God who rescued Paul is the same God who rescued the Corinthians. They had lost sight of this incredible saving grace. And Paul begins by reminding them, yes, there is sin in your past, but there is also grace in your past. Church, that church, our church, every church exists because of God. No church comes about of its own will, of its own effort. God, he's reminding them, God is at the bottom of this all. The church exists in Corinth. Corinth shouldn't have a church. If you look at Corinth and all that it is, it should not have a church. But there is a church, and it's a messy church. And Paul is celebrating the fact that there is a church and that God is at the bottom of it. I remember once someone came to me many years ago and said, Hey, do you know that there are unmarried people in your church who are sleeping together? And I said, praise the Lord. It's exactly where they need to be. Church gets messy. Yes, I said, praise the Lord. We, we, are, we, we weren't aware of it, but now I am aware of it. And, and I'll have that conversation with them. But I'm just so glad that they're being exposed to the gospel. I said, it's kind of like going to the hospital and going, whoa, there's sick people here. In many ways, the church is full of sinners, called to be saints. Now, what's remarkable is not only does he remind them that God is at the bottom of it all, but look at what he does. This is incredible. In Paul's opening, he has the ability to thank God, not only just for their salvation, but then he goes on and he begins to thank God for the very things that they are abusing in the church and that later he has to correct. The exact same things. They were, for example, they were focused on their knowledge. There was, this was Greek philosophy infiltrating the church. They were puffed up on knowledge. They were full of pride in terms of their powers of speech which included their, their, uh, their, their, their gift of tongues, etc., uh, gifts of prophecy, their spiritual gifts. But listen to how Paul addresses them. He says, I give thanks to God, and then he says in verse 5, this, look at this, that in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. Paul is thanking God for the very things that are causing this church so much problem. Paul is recognizing here that the problem lies not in their giftedness or in the, the, the outpouring of God's empowering grace, but in their attitude towards their gifts, which is often the problem in charismatic circles today. It's not that the gifts are the problem. The gifts are from God's grace. It's the people's attachment to the gifts or the, 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 the fact that we lose sight of the giver and we fall in love with the gift more. And so Paul gives thanks for these things. 
He thanks God for their knowledge, although later he will correct them. He gives thanks to God for their speech and spiritual gifts, but later he addresses their abuse of spiritual gifts, particularly tongues and prophecy. He thanks God for their empowering grace, but he's going to spend so much papyri writing it to correct them, right? The Corinthian church is genuinely gifted, but notice this, they are genuinely immature. Spiritual giftedness doesn't equally mean spiritual maturity. And however, despite that, Paul doesn't see the abuses as disqualifying. He sees the grace of God and an immature reality. And he reminds us that we all need the grace of God. And so he paints this picture of their present reality, and then he reminds them of the promise of God's future for them. And this point's a lot shorter. We'll close up shortly. He then moves on. He says, um, Paul is so grateful for the grace of God, even though it's been taken advantage of. He's so grateful. He says that you, you lack no spiritual gifts. It's incredible. This church is so full of the fullness of, of the body of Christ, the fullness of the splendor of Christ. You lack no spiritual gift. But their problem was that they were so spiritually minded, they were no earthly good. We've, we know that saying. I think it comes from this particular book. Because they had, they had elevated themselves up with so much hype that they literally felt like they had entered into heaven itself. Their public meetings were wild and woolly. Paul has to address it about order and discipline. But their public meetings were wild. People were just running around and, and, and swinging from the chandeliers. And it was, it was chaos. And, and, and the reason for that is that God was pouring out His Spirit, but they were taking advantage of it. And it felt like they were already in heaven. And Paul needs to correct that. But notice how he does it. Look at verse 7. He says, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. And then he says this, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you're not there yet, guys. You haven't yet got there. Heaven is still coming. We haven't entered into glory yet. The presence of these signs and wonders, the presence of miracles, the presence of spiritual gifts, those are foretastes, in a sense, of the kingdom of heaven on earth. But what they suffered from was in what they call an over-realized eschatology. They had already thought they had entered the kingdom of heaven. And the product, the sad product, was that they didn't really care about each other. And so everyone was just doing their thing. If, if, if people had the gift of tongues, they would all speak in the gift of tongues. And Paul's like, whoa, 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 you, you shouldn't do that. It's unhelpful. There's no order. No one's being built up. All you're doing is building yourself up. And if all you ever do is come to church for yourself, you've missed it. Notice, I think in verse 7, he's saying a few important things that we need to log as we go towards the rest of the book. 
Firstly, he's saying here that spiritual gifts do not last forever. Why? Because, well, we won't need them in heaven. And that's the irony of the situation. They thought they had gone to heaven because of their spiritual ecstasy. And the irony is Paul saying, guys, the fact that there are spiritual gifts among you is evidence that you're not in heaven because we won't need them in heaven. And then he reminds us not only that, that, they, that they will one day end when we're in heaven, but he was also reminding us that they will be present in this gospel age. There will be spiritual gifts. You will not be lacking in spiritual gifts until the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the whole gospel age, the age of the church, will be necessary for there to be gifts. And we'll talk more about that as we get there. But notice also that he's also saying that it's not that one individual had all the gifts. He's saying that in your togetherness, there was all the gifts. It's actually a beautiful picture. That as each person contributes with their giftedness, so the body is being built up. The problem, however, is that they thought that each person had all the gifts. And so they didn't need each other anymore. And Paul goes to length in chapter 12 to say, no, no, this is how a body looks. You know, one's a foot and one's a hand. We're going to get there. But also he's reminding us that even though they didn't lack spiritual gifts, they did lack spiritual fruit. And he wants to correct that. They were so caught up in their spiritual gifts that they had lost sight of the purpose of the gifts. And that is to build each other up and bring glory to Christ. So to end, Paul finishes his introduction in a remarkable way. Paul is able to thank God for the very things they're abusing. But then he reassures them that even though it's a messy church, that God can still work with them. Because when God starts something, he finishes it. God does not make mistakes. Look what he says in verse 8. God will sustain you to the end. Notice this. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when I read that, I think, Paul, somebody take the mic away from Paul. Guiltless, really? These guys are anything but guiltless. But Paul, again, has divine perspective. Why? Because Paul's confidence is not in the Corinthians. Paul's confidence is in God's ability. Even though this church was full of sin and had missed the mark, Paul was confident that if God had started the work, God will complete it. And here's the, here's the promise underneath that. Verse 9. God is faithful. God is faithful. Although the Corinthians have been unfaithful, and although there's been an unfaithful handling and stewarding of gifts and spiritual realities, God is faithful. And if you hear only one thing today, I want you to hear that. When we look at the mess of our lives, if, you, if you're still trying to deal with your past, your past messiness, whatever it might be, whatever the mess of your life is, I want to remind you today, God is faithful. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The foundation 
for the corrections that are going to come. The foundation for, for any life change, for any life transformation has to be the grace and the faithfulness of God. He will finish the work. You know what the faithfulness of God is? The faithfulness of God is the fact that He is obliged to finish it if He started it. Because otherwise His holiness is at risk. And that's why He says it so adamantly. God is faithful. Remind yourself. Tell yourself. God is faithful. Even with the Corinthians, and so too with us. Let's pray.